We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion, and respect. This is the Intersection Hub podcast, where we have candid conversations for social good. My name is Kimberly McKenzie. And my name is Paul Nazareth. We believe in the power of community and that together we can continuously learn, support, challenge, and improve ourselves, our organizations, and our sector. Join us in the Hub. We look forward to getting to know you. When I first met Lisa Greer, I liked her right away. I liked her because she cuts through small talk and digs into real talk about real issues, particularly with respect to the charitable sector. For those of you who haven't had the opportunity to meet Lisa, she's an entrepreneur, an investor, and a philanthropist. Lisa has served on dozens of high-profile volunteer boards, founded two healthcare-related companies. As a Hollywood executive, she managed a variety of entities and pioneering ventures. She's the mother of five and lives with her husband, Josh, and their two youngest children in Los Angeles. When I read Lisa's book, Philanthropy Revolution, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed because, frankly, some of her experiences as a high net worth individual were abhorrent. In this conversation, Lisa shares some of those stories and her suggestions on how we can revolutionize philanthropy. Make a cup of tea and sit back for this one. It is quite a ride. Please join me in welcoming Lisa Greer to The Hub. It's great to see you. I'm so excited about this conversation today. Great to see you too, Kimberly. So let's take a second and welcome Lisa Greer to the Hub. Welcome to the Hub. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're so glad that you're here. And I have to say that meeting you over the last couple of months and getting to know you a little bit has been a real highlight. And I've been wanting to have this conversation for weeks. So here we are. Um, Can't wait to hear what you throw at me. <laughs> and I'm excited to hear you in something other than 280 characters, because that's usually the voice that I hear you in. Ah. Is that how you mostly know each other from Twitter, like exchanges on Twitter? Not, not even exchanges. I, I read all of Lisa's content, but haven't always been kind of uh, in the mix per se. But again, this is what I was talking about, is this important voice that rounds out the discussion out there. So I read every tweet and article you put out there, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the, the t- tweets are meant to be the snarkiest of the different uh, media that I use. And uh, so you're getting the snarky site. So if, if I'm not snarky enough today, you'll you'll have to go. There we go. That. Here for it. Teaspooling yeah. is not a problem. <laughs> we'll do something about that. So um, the, I think, Lisa, the wonderful thing about you uh, and being able to have this conversation is not just the fact that you are a philanthropist and you are a high net worth individual, um, but you also seem to be really passionate about improving our sector and helping us all do better. And so that voice is very rare. Um, I think maybe you're on your own with that. I don't know if there is anybody else. So I just finished reading your book and there's a couple of things here where You've you've said a few things. You talk about pandering, 
you use the word abhorrent. Um, here's a quote, I'm there to be worked and coddled, manipulated uh, into loosening my purse strings. And as somebody who um, worked with high net individuals for most of my career, I just feel compelled to apologize to you for, for, for all of that. Um, it, it, it was painful for me to read that truth. Well, I sense that neither of you would ever be the person who would do that, but it is something that, and, and it's not, as, as you saw in the book, we've had a number of different circumstances, but the ones that I think we need to get the most learning from are the ones that are um, offensive and off-putting because yeah. I didn't give money to those places. Yeah. So I, I hate the idea that a fundraiser would do something that they were trained to do Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it doesn't work and they don't know why and donors don't yeah. talk about it. And that makes me really, you know, sad and concerned. And so that was really why I wrote the book is because I realized I was in a position where I was actually willing and happy to talk. And most donors, if not, you know, almost all of them just aren't, don't want to take the time or, uh, they just, what they usually say to me is, cause I asked a whole bunch of donors, why, why aren't there more books from donors? And, you know, why don't you talk about it? And, um, the answer that I got time and again was, well, it's easier to just you know hang up the phone or just end the meeting and I'm just not going to give to them. And, and I said, well, but then how does that help them get better? And they said, that's not my job. Yeah. So, so I decided, Lisa, that's my job. Speaking the hard truth is how you actually creating some friction and helping folks improve. Um, and I, I want to get into all that. Uh, and I know we're going to talk about donor advised funds and Paul's looking forward to that conversation, especially. Uh, but before we do, can you just tell us how, how did you come into this work? How did you become a philanthropist? So it was a big shock to us. I, I did become an overnight philanthropist. Uh, and the way that happened is that my husband and I are both serial entrepreneurs and we worked really hard for a very long time. And I'm not saying that everybody who works really hard becomes a philanthropist, but we were fortunate enough that uh, that that paid off. And uh, we uh, had an, my husband's company had um, an IPO back about 10, 11 years ago. Uh, and I found myself having to learn very quickly before the IPO, once they started going on the road and all that, I had to learn how this whole thing even worked because I was so kind of average middle class that I didn't know what trusts really were. I didn't know what that was. I just knew that there were trust fund kids who were not nice but that was all I knew about trusts. I didn't know that a development person meant a fundraiser. Didn't know that, so I got caught in that a number of times. Um, I, I didn't know anything about that whole approach to fundraising I, and, and what the rules were. I didn't know, you know, golden triangle or any of that stuff. I just didn't, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't part of my uh, understanding or language or any of that. So uh, overnight we uh, became philanthropists, thought we'd get an onslaught of people asking us for money mm -hmm. uh, and we like immediately because it was very public and we did not. And I still find that to be incredibly shocking. And I talk about in my book, why that's the case. Uh, we did get an onslaught from uh, investment bankers, wealth managers. They were onto us within 24 hours, but the nonprofits in some cases, ones that one that I was on the board of, uh, uh, still took a year and a half. They had an affiliated group in the same building and they took a year, year and a half to recognize that I was giving. And that was, that was a year after we had given our first million dollars. So I, I found that 
very from a business point of view, which is where I come from, I found that really astonishing mm-hmm. that, that, that people would be professionals, but not be able to see what's happening right under their noses. Yeah. Um, I want to create space for Paul, but I'll let him in in a second. I just, um, I read and I heard you, I heard you talk about you do these wonderful ask me anything and you put yourself out there and you and you let folks just come at you with any kind of question. Um, And one of the things that you disclosed was that it took you seven months to make a $2 million donation. Yeah, it didn't take me seven months to make the donation. It took them seven months to accept the money from me. Right. <laughs> the difference there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I was thinking about it, that would be one thing. But I wasn't thinking about it. I knew what I wanted to do, but they didn't trust that I was for real. Right, right. And you had another organization ask to speak to your husband. I did. That wasn't fun either. No, I'm sure, especially because you were on the board there. I, I was the president of the board. <laughs> But that's still evidently that's not good enough for some people. So it was it was unfortunate. But uh, I think a lot of it is not the people who were involved. But in both cases, I think it was how those people were trained. And yeah. it breaks my heart that I, I, I know for a fact that people are still being trained that same um, unpleasant way uh, up until today and including today. Somebody at some school and some class right now is being trained to, in fact, I talked to a friend yesterday who works at a a big university and he was literally told, um, and he's been in development a long time, but, but he was told, oh, this is the way you do it. You read off a script. And I thought, what? Like, really? So, and, and, and his company had paid lots and lots of money for that brilliant piece of information. So I I found that um, just, just shocking. And, and I'll know that I've made an impact when I hear about you know, classes where people are being told to treat donors like human beings as opposed to like piggy banks. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was, I, I've sort of alienated someone who taught me everything I knew about major gifts, but it occurred to me after years and years and years of listening to this person, quite well known up in Canada. Um, and then I compared it to my actual experience and this idea of moves management never actually resulted in a six or seven figure gift. Those those gifts came from authentic conversations and relationships and were usually driven by the donor. So I stood up at a conference and I challenged that fundraiser in public and said, I don't think moves management is a thing anymore. I think that's kind of an archaic thing yeah. uh, and that we need to think about it in terms of an engagement continuum, which is a different way of approaching major giving. And, and so I, I would agree with you. I think that the way we are trained and the practical application uh, is very different. What do you think, Paul? This is where I feel the importance of your voice comes in, Lisa. One of the challenges is these kind of things are kind of like the pearl created by an oyster, you know, in the rubbing of and the friction of, of tension. And one of the challenges in the world of fundraising, and, you know, again, you know, my background is about 20 years in the sector, working for the largest university in the country, large organizations, donor advised funds, online giving. And one of the reasons that I'm so motivated by it is I also hate a lot of the way that fundraising is done. And there are these tension points, one of the biggest ones being campaigns, fiscal year ends that create that kind of tension. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, I'm very grateful for our leadership bodies to do the teaching. And that's part of my role as well. I teach fundraisers. I actually teach financial advisors 
how to engage in philanthropic conversations. And that's what we try to do is you say, you've got to be careful of scripts. Again, a lot of uh, organizations, sales organizations, all of that fall into these things. Uh, and you've got to be aware of the tension of the deadlines and campaigns versus what, how can we have organic conversations? How can we have conversations that are about values as much as they are about dollar figures? So, you know, the, the voice piece is that you also help the sector to tell the people that make those scripts, to tell the bosses that send people for that kind of training, you're, you're out of step. Mm-hmm. This is not the right way to do it. And they need to hear that from a donor because exactly. their own people will never say it because they just do what the boss says. Well, and, and that's exactly right. And that's why I think it's very important to get, uh, well, first of all, that I, I don't, my book has been picked up all over the world in a number of different countries and people in schools and, and et cetera. And, and it's taken off in a way that I never, that I hoped for, but I never anticipated. And I think the reason is exactly what you just hit on because I made those million dollar gifts. And if I had not, if I was a thousand dollar max donor, I don't think anybody would have cared. And, uh, but because of it, people have to listen. And what makes me really excited is that um, mid-level development people have contacted me in droves thanking me and saying, I believe this, but nobody will listen to me. So now if they're armed with my book, they can come in and go, they can't, they have a little bit of uh, ammunition to go to their boss and say, hey, this is an actual major donor who says this, this isn't my idea, it might be exactly what they were thinking, but they now have somebody who has the credibility that will make the uh, their boss actually say, oh, maybe I do have to listen to it. And the same is, it, it's the same for board members. So whenever I send out the book to people, I always say at an organization, your board members need to have this too, because otherwise you could have you could have the, the mid-level and the senior level development person aligned in how to do this sort of modern method of fundraising. But if the board is going to say, and you know, in relationship fundraising, but if the board says, I don't want to hear about that. You just go out and raise some money right now. I don't want to talk to you. Otherwise you won't have a job. And if they have that attitude, then it's not going to work. So we need to, we need to advise them as well. And it's finding its way all over the place too. Very cool that uh, you're uh, featured in Beth Breeze's new book uh, out in the UK in defense of philanthropy. Uh, I was so excited about that because Beth actually told me, excuse me for that, but I just, I'm so excited because I didn't even know about it until two days ago. Um, she'd asked if she could quote, but you never know what's going to be in the book. But we contacted Beth because a really, really big piece of this is when the book came out and it, it had come out in the UK first. And uh, I, I kept wondering as I was writing the book, like, where did this stuff come from? Where did these rules come from? I don't understand. Like, why does everybody, why do they keep teaching the same stuff when it doesn't really work? I mean, a very, it, it, you've got the same, I, you know, the same, I call it the, the 10 old white guys who've been sustaining these organizations for years and years and years. And you said, but there's all these other people that you're not talking to. I don't understand why. And they said, well, that's because we were trained that this is the way. So so I was constantly wondering, like, where did this come from? And uh, someone says, talk to Beth Breeze. And so I did. And uh, I think Beth had contacted me first. I, I can't really remember. And, I, and, and she was telling me what she does. And she says, I teach a class in the history of philanthropy. And I thought, oh, this is the person. So I asked her and I said, when was this stuff created? The ask and the script and the blah, 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 and all this, you know, the pandering and all that. And she said that she actually traced it and she does teach this in a class and she traced it to about 100, 105 years ago. And it was four industrialists that, uh, that, that had really created the first foundations. 
And they also created a lot of these rules. And she spoke to the grandson of one or two of them and who said, yes, we followed this along. And it's the same stuff that we're doing now was created then. So how many things can you think of or can anyone who's listening to this think of that are pretty much exactly the same as they were 100 years ago? That's just crazy. Yeah. So you you had the book get out to all these different places. You know, I was just the other day looking at the excerpt in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Very interesting to see what excerpt they chose too. Uh, you know, part of it, I'd love to hear more about because I find myself as a career fundraiser feeling defensive about some of the way that you position it. What has been your experience? Again, I, I'm, I'm interested to see what people are defensive about because sometimes I'm kind of like, how can anybody argue that this stuff is gross? You know, again, just think of it as a humanity perspective and you will often come back to that. Think of it as a human being. It's gross and it's weird. Uh, and so what have you found as your experience in terms of how people push back in what parts of the world, et cetera? Because perfect example, Beth Breeze, there is a lot of cultural differences between North America and UK in some of the ways they treat it, methodologies, benefits, all of that. Yeah, so interesting that you're using the term gross. I hadn't thought of that, but I'm going to start using that more often. Oh. That's exactly right. One of our things in the world of plan giving for the past couple of years is said, do we openly say, how do we stop making this thing weird? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it is. It is definitely weird. And and, you know, when you come in not being a lifelong donor, you know, I wasn't what I call it as, as you read in the book. I'm you know, we weren't on the list. So we weren't on that like super, super secret list of all of the donors. And so they didn't believe us that we even though it was public information that we had we'd had this liquidation event, people didn't believe us. And they didn't even really care to look at the research. I mean, it could have been a two minute Google search and they would have known, but they didn't bother because we weren't on that list. And, and I find that really offensive and off-putting and exclusive in a bad way and all the things that people are railing against today. Um, but as far as uh, things being different in different parts of the world, uh, I have actually found, we, we tested this a little bit because when we wrote it in the UK, uh, wrote it with a, a UK um, uh, agent and publisher, we, you know, there was some concern because we had to change some of the words in the book to be the English um, in some cases, Canadian version of them as well, and, and, and not US. And so there was a lot of back and forth. And the question kept coming up, you know, is it really going to be so different in the UK that you're going to have to rewrite sections of it? So we did a lot of checking around and we found out it was the same. I mean, it, the approach might be a little bit more low key there, but it's very much the same. And the donors are just as angry as donors are here about the way that it's done. And then we checked with people in Israel and people in Australia and uh, people, you know, I've had conversations with them doing one in um, South America and uh, next month. And it's, it's pretty much the same stuff, which I, I was really surprised about. So this, I guess in a hundred years, you, you know, people start learning that, oh, this is the way that it's done. Okay. But wait, I mean, it's great that the book is all around the world and that Beth picked it up and wonderful that we're looking at, you know, but I, I actually, I want to, I want to talk about the, Paul's question was, are fundraisers defensive? Because yes. as I was reading it, I I got my back up a little bit. And even before I read it, I wanted to check in with you to make sure that it was referenced. Like your 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 anecdotes are supported by data, which, you know, spoiler, 15 pages of data, yes. Um, and research. Uh, but is that a lot or a little? I mean, it's a lot. I mean, you, you've gone. You, it's a, it's a lot to me. But you, you have gone to a place where you are supported by some really 
uh, credible research. And it's not just your experience. Your experience is reflective of what's actually happening and is proven with data. So that's wonderful. And when you talk about thing, some things, you know, it does, it can get my back up a little bit, even though I agree with the whole major donor moves management piece. Um, I just feel, I feel like part of me was thinking, well, she's just had some really shitty fundraisers talk to her. <laughs> That's, we don't really do that. But, but is that kind of yeah. what you're trying to get to, Paul? Like, what are they, yeah, what do they do? Uh, for sure. You know, again, I always believe hell hath no fury like an amateur. Uh, And that's one of the challenges, just like you were saying, Lisa, when boards and people say there's a campaign or there's a deadline or there's a goal, go out and make it. And I don't care how or we're going to train you on this methodology because we work in sales and we believe this methodology should come over to fundraising. Uh, When people don't do it well, I see a lot of that in there. But again, I'm always interested in what people are defensive to. So so let me me give you some answers to that. Yeah. Yeah. So so first of all, uh, 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 Kimberly, the. Research was purposeful for exactly the reason you just described it. It was very important to me that we uh, that that it's not that I am the voice of the donors. I'm not a voice of a donor. And and I thought because I'm trying to make real change. And if people don't think the change is necessary, then why am I wasting my time? So I first spent a, a good year, two years talking to other donors and saying, "Has this ever happened to you?" Because if, if donors don't talk about this either. We don't talk about feeling really crappy after an appointment. We, we don't. And it's just because then we'll sound like whiny rich people. So we just don't talk about it. And I, 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 I now have sort of a support group of donors finally that, that talk about it because we can't talk about those things. And so I, but I checked with people of all ages, all backgrounds, all you know, people who had money, inherited money and people who earn money and everybody had had these experiences. And that's when I said, I've got to write this book along with a, a wonderful professor at the Lilly School who said, you have to write this book, that, that everybody's aware of this issue. So, but I want to answer your question. Yeah. So one of the things that you don't talk about those things is let's get specific around those crappy lunches where we're taught that we're supposed to wine and dine you and become your friend and leave you feeling all warm and cozy. Um, and often that is not how you feel at the end of those interactions. So, okay. So let me, let, let me respond to that. And then I'll answer Paul's question. Cause I do want to answer that about the pushback. Yeah. So first, yeah. I don't No, I'll do yours first. I, I don't, I don't, uh, um, I don't part of your, what you just said is, is, is yes, it's the way that you were taught. But the way that people are taught is that donors are a certain uh, type of human and they're a different type of human than everybody else. And they need this, oh, you look lovely today. Oh, you need lunch. Oh, you need whatever. And anything that's going to group us all together and say, we are, all, we are because you have money, you then become this different type of human. I just find that deeply offensive and it's also wrong. So, so that's not, so it's not to say that that there aren't people around who haven't had the experiences in the same way I have. I know they've all had experiences or all the ones I talked to, which is just anecdotal, have said that they've all had experiences that they felt really uncomfortable about. That's across the board. And so, so I know that happens, but there are people who love the lunches. They, they thrive on the lunches. I don't like the lunches. I don't like the galas. Some people live for galas. It's just a different thing, but we need to be recognized as individuals in the same way that any other person at any other profession or life you know, type of, of style uh, is, is an individual. And so anything that's going to be 
completely across the board, I think is just is just unfair. But but I do want to answer Paul's oh, question. Don't pretend to be my friend and then surprise me with a solicitation is the take. That's a whole other thing. And I have an answer to that that I'm now training people on because that is. Um, and, and by the way, I don't think that the fundraiser likes playing that game either. Oh. I, I, right. So you've just been told that's the way to do it. But but I don't think it's rewarding for them. And my proof of that is that, you know, 18 percent of uh, what? No, I'm sorry, not 18 percent of 18 months is the average that fundraisers stay in a position. And that's that's like that's like the average. So there's a whole bunch that are going, you know, 12 months, 12 months. And you have to look at that and say, like, why does that happen? You can't blame the fundraisers. Oh, they're just awful people who don't want to stay at a job. Not true. It's because something's going on because that number has been pretty darn consistent for years. But, but Paul, let me answer your question about the pushback. I've gotten very, very, very little pushback. I was expecting it constantly. And it's been um, I, I, I can. Well, I can count them on one hand. And I've done 75 different podcasts and interviews about that, more or less. And I've had two people say something that they were upset to me and one wrote something in a chat. And that was literally it. Now, I'm not maybe people have you know, hung up the phone or turned off their computer. And so I don't know that they were angry. But but there were people who said that one of them was, was a little bit similar to what Kimberly said uh, and said, oh, well, you must have been you must have been working with small organizations. So instead of saying, you know, I was working with, with bad fundraisers, they said, well, you must have been working with only small organizations. You must not work, work with large organizations because the big organizations would never do that. And you and I, but all, we all know that actually it's kind of the opposite. Kind of the opposite, <laughs> absolutely. Opposite feeling. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's so many things, so many things to talk about because you talked about staff retention, but Way at the beginning, there was a hint of chatting about the connection. We're not just talking about major gift fundraising here. We're talking also about annual funds and the way you the way the the, the assumption that you will make an annual gift to a charity just because you made one the year before makes me crazy. Everything Absolutely, that with that. it's so offensive. It's it's just it's like I, I go to the store and I buy a leather jacket and someone would say, oh, okay, when you come next year and you buy your next leather jacket, I'd say, what are you on? Yeah. Like, why would you think that? And it's, 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 and also by the way, coming to it from the outside, coming to it from the business world and not the, not growing up with these terms and all, uh, I didn't even know about this annual fund thing. I, I just, I, I, I didn't understand. I also, I joined it when we first had our money, we immediately put it into a donor advised fund and I didn't understand why when it got to be the end of the year, I, I think our event happened in maybe June and whatever it was, when it got to be the end of the year and everybody was saying, okay, well, we want to talk to you about your end of the year gift. And they make this assumption, by the way, assume is like, that's a big, big category here is assuming it's just bad all around. And, mm -hmm. but to assume that I'm going to make my annual gift, and they really would say that to me it would, in the same way that they would say, uh, uh, you know, uh, last year you gave us 25, can you increase it this year? 2,500, 25,000, whatever it is, $25. But they're assuming, and I want to say, wait a minute, I ne we never had this discussion. This, it's almost like a gaslighting thing. We never had this discussion. I never told you, you didn't even ask me if I was going to interested in giving to you again. Why would you assume that? And that's why that percentage is so low, which is, yeah. uh, is also the 18%. And so I, I find it, I don't know where that, where the chutzpah was created to be able to, to assume that somebody, because they give once, are going to give again. And then the other part we didn't know is the annual donor thing. And then the other part was this end of the year giving. Well, we want to talk to you about, about your end of the year gift. What do you mean my end of the year gift? I didn't talk to you about an end of the year gift. What do you, what do you, and I don't 
What? And so I called my accountant and I said, am I supposed to make an end of the year gift? Is there something I don't know? And she said, no, your money's in a donor advice fund. It doesn't matter tax wise. So it doesn't matter. Go on your vacation and have a good time. I thought, I thought, you know, I've got five kids and I thought, well, I thought that, you know, when school's out for, for, for winter break, I'm supposed to go on vacation. It's supposed to be family time. And, you know, we go and do those things. I didn't think that there was this obligation to give this end of the year gift. And I certainly didn't think that between Christmas and New Year's, I was going to get like solicitations 20 or 30 or 40 a day saying, hurry, hurry, hurry. We need your money before the 31st. It blew my mind. I, I, and and I, it still does. Paul? Well, the, you know, this is the mechanics of fundraising. Again, in my role in teaching, uh, often I'll just beg everyone to say we need to break down all this jargon, all this stuff that's that's motivated by our internal needs and machinations. Again, for one of my pet fees is the titles. You mentioned you didn't know uh, that development officers meant fundraising. Uh, you know, I worked at one of the largest universities in our country, and I joked with some folks that I had this donor. Uh, uh, my ancestral background is Indian, uh, and you can see here, not on the podcast, but this donor referred to me as senior development officer for like a couple of years. Uh, and I never corrected her because it was awesome. And because our titles are dumb. Our titles are ridiculous. You know, even things like our out of office vacation messages and things like that. If you're calling to make a use, you know, we need to calm down about these kind of cycles. And that's one of the reasons I personally also like donor advice funds, because they break those cycles. They break those conversations up to say, let's actually have natural, organic conversations about timing, what, where, all of that. But that is one of the, the, the great challenges in the space for sure. So, so one of the things that I tell people, I just want to add this real quick, is that just think about how you would feel if someone did that to you. That's, that is really sort of my entire Uber piece here is, is don't assume and imagine if somebody, if that was you. And, and people say to me, well, I'm not a donor. I can't imagine that. And I'm like, you are a donor. Everybody I know has given something at some point. I could talk to the homeless person down in Skid Row and they have given a blanket to somebody at some point. Everybody has. And so why, because you've given something, do you fall into another category where you need to be talked to differently? It just doesn't make sense. So I suggest that every fundraiser, actually, I now suggest that every fundraiser open a donor advice fund because you can now do them with no minimum as of just a few months ago. And so you open it and you actually feel like, what is it like to be on the other side of that? So to park the annual giving uh, conversation, uh, the, the term annual fund is very much inside baseball, not something we should be talking to donors about. It's up to us to earn the next gift. We're not entitled to it. And if donors feel like they, they are motivated and inspired to continue to have impact because we've told them they had impact, um, then, then they'll do so. And there's lots of great techniques to do that. Uh, what I'm confused about is whether donor advised funds are a good thing or a bad thing. Like, and because I've never worked with them. I have worked on it, gifts of life insurance. I've worked on complex estate gifts, um, but I've never worked with a donor advised and gifts of securities, which is different, right? Yep. Yeah, this is a very different, this is, yeah. I, don't even, I wouldn't even put it in that category. Okay. This is just a, 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 a mechanical uh, a product that allows you to, if you have a big bunch of money that comes in, it's your annual bonus or it's your, uh, and, and, and let me give you an example, back to the, the sort of holiday thing. If you, I get an annual bonus at the end of the year, a lot of people get that. Let's say I get that. And at, at, at the moment, it, I am required, let's, and, and it could be, let's say it's December 15th and 
I am now thinking, well, I want to give this to something charitable and, but, oh, I have to do it right now for tax reasons. Mm -hmm. Back to what I was saying earlier, I think you should, you know, say, take a little bit of the money and, you know, go off on a nice vacation and, and, uh, and, and, and don't worry about it. But there's this sort of taxing looming. And then, of course, these fundraisers calling. So if you have a donor advised fund, then you can just pack up that little bag, put that money in, get your tax benefit is the way that it is, is it works. And know that it's there in a fund where you don't have to write out checks ever again. For Not that people do checks, but you don't have to do individual transactions ever again. Yeah. All you do is say, please send the money to this person when I get back from my vacation in January. And I say, OK, now I want to kind of plan out. You know what? I remember so-and-so does a big event in, where they're collect, doing a food collection in, in March. I want to be part of that. I can do that. Yeah. So that we're going to that's strategic philanthropy there. And we're going to get. Paul, to why you're pro-donor advised fund, but it, it seems to me that there's a lot of money sitting in donor advised funds that are, is not being spent. And your point about the institutions that hold those funds have a financial benefit to not releasing them. So to me, that seems like a bit of a problem. It is a bit of a problem. And it's something that I didn't realize until I started working on the book. And I, I, I it was like, I just found gold. I couldn't believe it. And I've been on the board, as you read, of the a, 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 a foundation of donor advised funds for six years. And I didn't even see it, just didn't see it. It wasn't, I, I read financial, didn't see it. And then all of a sudden one day I said, wait a second. And I was just, you know, it's one of those creative times and I'm, I'm sort of thinking, and I thought, let me follow the money here. And I realized that there is, because I, I couldn't understand why this donor advised fund group wasn't at the beginning of it, when you open an account there and at other places, they'll say, what are you interested in? And they give you a little form as you're filling out your tax forms or whatever. And it says, you know, are you interested in, in, in children's issues? Are you interested in religious stuff? Are you interested in education? Are you interested in technology? And you do check, check, check. And I thought, okay, they gave me that form. So it must mean that when somebody comes in their door, or they hear about an organization that maybe someone else funds or they, someone knocks on their door and they say, this is a really cool new nonprofit. They're going to call me and say, hey, we just met these people. And it never, ever happened. And so after about five years of being on the board, I called the person who uh, oversaw this stuff. And I said, I don't understand. It's now been five years and I'm waiting for these calls. And I, I, I ran into someone the other day. They said they came in and, and, and did a presentation to you. And yet, and, it's, and that co- coordinates with the, where I said I'm interested in that category, but yet you haven't said anything to me. And the answer I got was, well, we don't do that. And I thought, that's not a really good answer. So it took me a while. And I thought, thought there has to be a reason why I talking to nonprofits all day long who are saying, I went into the door and gave a presentation, yet I'm on the other side of that with a donor advised fund and I'm never hearing about it. And I thought, I don't understand. So that's when I started looking into it and realized that uh, there was um, uh, a financial piece there and there's absolutely no incentive. In fact, there's a disincentive for them to recommend that I spend that, you know, spend the money in the donor advice fund. So this donor advice fund, most donor advice funds talk about, including the really big ones, how much money they have. We have this much money under management. We have this much money, billions and billions. So do you think that if a, whatever it is, it's a Fidelity or a Schwab or one of the big ones or one of the community ones, are they really going to do an ad that says we have X billions of dollars under management and then they're going to say, oh, no, we want to actually have more people spend it. So then they're going to do a new ad that says, we have 10% less than that now. Yay us. Nobody's going to do that. It's crazy. So, so, And they get paid a fee 
for doing that. And so, yes, is the is the is the way that it's structured where they get a fee based on the balance in your account? Is that a little bit screwed up? Yes. Uh, should they have some obligation to tell their donors who have some level of interest and maybe even who don't? Here's some things you can give to. Yes, but it doesn't happen. And so, when people blame the donor advice fund, uh, the people who have those those accounts and blame them and say, well, you're just you're just warehousing the money because you, you know, because you you just don't want to give it to to, to charities. Look at it in, in, in my particular situation, and, and I know in others, I know that I and everybody else who has a has a fund at this place fills out the same form I did. And so there should be, if you're gonna give me the form, there should I I I deserve to have the expectation that you're gonna tell me about things and I don't need to go look on my own because you're gonna tell me about them. And when you find out they don't and the money sits there, don't blame me for having the money sitting there because you guys should be telling me what I can spend it on. But because there's that financial piece where they make more money if the money sits, then then the money just kind of stays there and it's a problem. It's also about the culture of the project, the product, right? You know, one of the challenges is is that this is something that has been commercialized over the past 20 years uh, on both sides of the border. They've been around for 100 plus years in community foundations, right? In the end, donor advised funds are just a fund within a public foundation. A little bit of different legislation on both sides of the border, but we're on both sides of the border right now. We're arguing over disbursement quotas and changing and raising and all of that. Uh, and actually, so you've got a bill in the States. You've got a government consultation in Canada. It's sucking up a lot of energy right now. And, but what you're talking about is a change in the culture and the very nature of the product. And that in a lot of cases, the, the culture of it and the nature of the product was about amassing capital. Uh, and we had private foundations doing this before as well. And the real question is, what is the purpose? Is the purpose to, is to get this money on the street, do good? And again, you can see that in the way they do reporting. Very different culture, very often in community foundations where they talk less about how much money is in the bank and more about how, mu- how much money has been granted. That's right. Granted to what? And actually, now I'm excited to hear more to granted by who. Mm-hmm. Well, we well, and, seeing- and, the, and the other piece they don't say, though, is they, they love to say how much was granted out. You're absolutely right. But what they don't say is how much came in. And the amount that came in is exponentially higher than the amount that went out. But if, if whenever you see one of those reports or press releases, we gave out this much this year, you need to ask the question. I always look at them and say, OK, maybe this time they're going to say how much money came in. And they never, ever say it. Mm-hmm. Again, I think that the one challenge is that a lot of that is about the culture and purpose. And I don't think we can legislate our way out of this problem. And that's what a lot of people are advocating for. You can raise the quota to whatever it is. The other part of this is we've got the receipts on both sides of the border, too, about where that money is granted. And again, if the foundation of any kind is not giving great advice to the donor to say things like, again, a lot of them are on the culture on you tell us what you want to do. Well, then guess what? If you ask me what I want to do, then I'm going to go for the usual suspects or whatever I know within my frame of reference in the world. Again, a lot of there should be more expectation on these providers to be expanding our idea of what is possible for a lot of us. Things like access to granting to BIPOC or diversity or different things. If that's not part of your realm of experience, it's probably not going to happen. Right, because you don't know what you don't know. And but there is another piece to this, too, which um, I'm, I'm guessing you also teach in your class. And and that's that. That I, I think that those, so not only do the donors who have these funds, who open these funds, very possibly a lot of them, maybe most of them don't know about these other options and they don't want to really, they don't even want to take the, make the effort, maybe they don't have time to take, make the effort because they just made a bunch of money to, to go and find these different organizations to give to. So it sits there. But the other piece that I find really, really interesting is that I believe, and this is just my personal opinion, but I believe that a lot of those people 
haven't been giving a lot. They, they put their money in because something happens. And a lot of these people are younger and you know they, they all of a sudden it's an inheritance or it's a big, it's a sale of a company or it's whatever. And you put the money in there and, and now you're going to go spend it. And you're not, not only you're not sure where to spend it, but if you dip your toe in the water and you say, I'm going to go talk to XYZ organization that my friend gave to, and you have an experience where they say, oh, don't you look lovely today? You are so wonderful. Oh, my God. And where did that money come from? Oh, I didn't know. You're so awesome. You are the awesomest thing. And you have to come to our gala. And you have to look at this pile of paperwork. If that was me, I would just say, forget it. I, I, I never want to have this experience again. Clearly, this isn't something I'm meant to do because I just wasted an hour and a half of my life. I'm never going to get back. And I'm just going to let it sit there until someday something changes. And if I have to leave it to my cat, so be it. And you've articulated it in the book in a number of places, but well, let's ask you here on the podcast again, what does a great interaction look like to you? And again, you've talked to a lot of other donors, age and stage, all that kind of thing. What is the ideal for not one size fits all, but for a lot of these cases? And again, donor advice is a great place to start with, because again, I, I agree. A lot of people put it in there, don't know where to start. And if it's a commercial daft, very often they don't have natural seasons like a lot of the community foundations do a vital signs reporting, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is a, a good organic way to have these conversations as opposed to the artificial ones that you've interacted with? Right. So thank you for the question. The, the, the answer is that there, as I was kind of referring to earlier, there isn't a one size fits all. So it depends on the person, but it's about being authentic. It's about honestly listening, which I consider one of the top qualifications for hiring a fundraiser now, way beyond, but you know, this should go, yeah, the list of qualifications to hire a fundraiser, the, the did you have 20 years of experience falls way below the can you honestly listen to a person as a human being? And if you listen to that person, and if you are authentic, and if you are honest, uh, because trust, as you, as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, is a really big issue, uh, and you, you establish trust like you would with anybody else, then the fundraising part isn't that hard because it either is going to, in, in fact, it's, it's, it's usually not even hard at all because yeah. you have established a relationship, which may or may not happen on day one. But if you've established a relationship and you know, you're going to know because the relationship, if the person is into classical music or education, and you are then going to say, oh my God, I just heard about this wonderful thing. And you're not going to pitch them on classical music if their thing is education and they're not into that. And so they know you're listening. They appreciate that. And, and you've also theoretically at that point established that they're a person who wants to help and who has a good heart and, and has some money. And, and then the rest of it is just putting that all together in a, and allowing them to experience the, the incredible feeling that somebody gets. And I know this sounds Pollyanna, but the incredible experience you get when you feel like you've changed something and you've, for the better. And that is what I describe in the book is 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 one of my best experiences. Um, I, I think uh, Kimberly called it once the gold standard of of these kinds of experiences, where someone said to me, "I'm not even going to give you what you just asked me for because you're not asking me for what you really want." And I'm going to because I've now talked to you. I'm going to tell you how do you achieve your goal in a way that is sustainable, as opposed to the way that you just described it to me. And because I was ignorant at that point. So yeah. I. I- I know this, we ha- we just have so much to talk about, but I feel like this conversation is going quite well. And uh, it's just a podcast. So people can pause it and come back later if they want to. That's perfectly okay. So let's not rush through this stuff. I want to rewind, just rewind. Let's just go back a little bit. The comment I was thinking as you were talking about the authenticity in a relationship, when 
when you are in sync with somebody who really cares about your cause, often a solicitation doesn't even occur. The need is there. They see the need. They want to fill that need. And the, you know that I love this story. So I want to give you an opportunity to share it if you don't mind. Sure. Um, sure. Because part of what I like about, about the, the book, I personally liked your um, lived experiences and your anecdotes more than all the other ranting and the data. I know we needed it. Ranting, come on. (laughs) I I loved it. And and I think and and I do absolutely want to get to talking about power dynamics because we are living through a reckoning and, and I want to create space for that in a little bit. But can you please tell us? that story go into more detail around when you had a dream of what you wanted your money to accomplish and the organization refused that. That's right. And, and so that's, that's probably feels to maybe your listeners like a very strange lead in using the word refuse, but, but it, you'll see why. So, <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to organize after we gave our first major gifts, I wanted to organize our funding into categories that were important to us. So some of them were categories like, like, you know, certain types of healthcare or, or, you know, Israel was a thing for us or Middle East peace and, and, and whatever. And one of those categories was local. I wanted to do something that was hyper-local. And so I, at that point, I had read about people who, uh, you know, were, were challenged by hunger issues in our community. And I, you know, every time I ate, I felt you know, really horrible about it. I mean, it's not like growing up and, um, it, 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 well, you probably know this on the other side of it, but we used to hear, you know, oh, finish your peas because there's poor children in India. That was what we were always told. And, and here it was, I've got these people right here. They're, they're a mile from my house and, and, and they could, they're at my kid's university. And, and what do I do? So I said, I, I looked around and so I, I, I called a few friends and I said, I want to know who knows how to feed people in L.A.? Who would be the person who would really know, like, how do people get fed in L.A.? Like, who who raises the money for that? And they told me to go to this guy, David Levinson, who uh, has an organization called Big Sunday. So I called David. I said, can we meet? He said, yes. I don't know if he knew who I was or whatever, but he had clearly done his homework. And he comes to our house and we talked and I said, I want to know how to feed these people. I, we have money now and I would I want to be able to, to make a dent in this. And the only way I can see of making a dent in this is to um, feed whoever can't get fed. Like I keep reading that the, the food banks are running out of food at the end of every month. So how can I refill those food banks for, uh, let's say, three months so that I can make sure that for three months they are all full and everybody gets the food they need in L.A., which you know, it might sound Pollyanna-ish a little bit too, but I really wanted to do something like that. And he said, I don't, I don't know. I said, so how much would it cost? And he said, I don't know. I said, do you have an idea? He said, no, I don't know. Let me find out and I'll get back to you. I said, okay. So he left. And about two weeks later, he called and he said, can I meet with you again? And I said, do you want to just tell me? He said, no, I'd really rather meet with you. I said, okay. So he came and I said, okay, what's the number? What's the number? I'm really, really busy. Tell me what the number is. He says, I'm not going to give you the number. And I thought, what? And so I, this, this, this business just kept getting stranger and stranger to me, really. And he says, I'm not going to give it to you because it's not sustainable. And I'd rather come up with a number that makes sense for you to invest in this so that it is sustainable. And we can, it's not just the foods eaten after three months and you're done. It's something that can keep going on and on. So he said, I said, so how are you going to do that? And he said, well, I'm going to create something and we're going to call it the, I think it was called the middle of the month club. It's now called the end of the month club. It's been going on for about 10 years. 
And uh, it is, uh, so his sustainable really did happen. We actually have been decreasing the amount of money that we spend on it because it is sustainable. And it's a way of bringing the community together to, uh, to fill up those food banks every month and, and letting them help, which is a really big deal that I talk about is, is look to your volunteers, do not put them in another category than your donors. So it, people love the idea of helping. And, and that's what he's about is half of this is, is the money that you raised or the tuna cans that you, that you contribute. But the other half of the, of, of this piece of this equation are people who get to feel like humans because they get to help. And he knew that I didn't know enough to know that really. And, and so he said, let's put together a program. Let's use the money to hire staff. And let's just make this thing happen. And it's been happening hugely successful again for about 10 years. So I thought that was just perfect. I'm really hoping that board members hear your comment there about volunteers and giving them the dignity to be part of the mission. There is a huge movement and pushback out there in the fundraising world where board members and leaders say, don't touch those volunteers. They're giving their time. We should never bother them about money. And sure, sometimes some of them freak out, but, but it's the way it's framed. You know, again, to say we, we want you to be part of the mission, inviting you in, not expecting a donation. Yeah. But there's a, there's a lot of weird stuff in that world. And this is a perfect example, because also food banks and hyperlocal are one of the things that expo- exploded in the pandemic. Food banks, you know, thousand plus percent increase because that's what people can wrap their heads around. Why do yeah. we also expect that everybody knows the answer to these problems? Mm-hmm. Right. Again, co-creation mm-hmm. often comes up in a better gift in more impact and more sustainable, but a reminder that that's, it's a challenge because a lot of people are just stuck on status quo. We fundraise this way, we fundraise with this people. And when we break through to organic conversations like this one was, I think that's where we end up in a great place. And part of it is, part of it is um, being willing to have a trusting and honest relationship to be able to say to the donor, to be able to understand, okay, I know what your intention is, and this isn't going to get you there. Your intention is to solve this problem. And the other piece of it that I love is that who are we to refuse people the joy of philanthropy, whether that's 50 or 100 or just buying into being part of this monthly end of month club? You know, we, we all deserve the opportunity to participate to, the, to our abilities because it feels good in our heart to solve problems through philanthropy. So now I just want your, your opinion here, Lisa. And again, you've talked to a lot of people about this and I'm sure they have a thought on this. You've mentioned several times and in your last uh, point here, your example, you talked about the person doing their homework mm-hmm. and this is about prospect research. And again, I can, I think if any prospect researchers researcher is listening to this podcast, they've probably been cringing all the way through because again, again, I feel a hell hath no fury, like an amateur. I think a lot of organizations don't do their homework. And just like you were saying too, our IPO was public. Our relationship to this, this organization was long and documented. And yet a lot of people in organizations don't do their homework. And again, in the, in the business that's called prospect research, but one of the things I feel strongly about is that a lot of this is also about respect, having the respect to come into a room prepared for the conversation. Some people are actually proud when they say, well, we don't know who has what and we just figure it out in the conversation. I think that the donors and people would want more of that respect to say, if you're going to come to me and spend the time 
I need you to do some of that homework. How, how do you feel about that? And what? Yeah, it, yeah. I, I have had people say, "Well, where did your money come from, anyway?" First of all, it's a rude comment question. And but I did have I did have a very professional, well paid uh, uh, fundraiser uh, ask me that. Um, I have had some people say the reason they don't do research is because they think that it's um, inappropriate, and I'll get upset if they tell me something that they found out about me. And I, you know, my answer to that is very simple, which is. Guess what? You can't get a job without somebody doing a Google search now. You can't get into college, university without somebody doing a search on you. So get over it because, but they're not taught that. And so that's where they get, they get stuck, like you were saying before. Um, but, and also I, I have spoken to some prospect research organizations myself, and I, I, I am incensed about what some organizations uh, uh, consider prospect research, the organizations that provide that information, the, inf the information that they provide is not relevant in many, many cases. And, and uh, like in, in the States, for example, one of the questions that's always asked, first of all, you know that initially with prospect research, the first thing that they do is they look at your own mailing list, right? And so, uh, so looking at your own mailing list, the three questions that I find are, and I probably read this in the book, that most people ask, uh, these people ask are, what's your political party? What are these people that you're researching? What's their political party? Uh, how much do they give to political causes? And what's the value of their home? Those are the first three questions that pretty much everybody does. And I say, no, you should do a five-minute Google search and you can learn much more about them as a human. But the reason why those three don't make any sense is because, first of all, what do you care what their political party is if they're already on your mailing list, they're already part of your organization coming to your events? And, 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 and interested. So throw that out the window. The, the thing about political contributions doesn't make any sense because there's caps on it. And the thing about your value of your home doesn't make anything because it tells you nothing about their equity. So it doesn't, it's, it's, it, it, it makes no sense. And yet organizations, I'm sure there's someone today signing a contract somewhere to get exactly that information off their own mailing list. And I just, I, I, I find it, there's a Yiddish word called a shanda, which is just like, it, it, it's, it's, it's completely ridiculous to be able to, to do that. And it's offensive. And so I think, and by the way, because I started getting really into prospect research and I was really interested in it recently, uh, since I spoke to this, a couple of these organizations, I actually had somebody do a wealth engine, um, give, tell me what the wealth engines say about me. Oh, I just did this a week or two ago. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, I was really chicken to do it until recently, but I did. It was, it couldn't have been more off. It was absolutely ridiculous. And what made, offended me even more, this is not in the book because it just happened, is it had a little bit of had the value of the home, which was completely wrong. It had, um, I mean, not even close. It didn't even have the amount that I paid for it before. It was just some, you know, whatever Zillow or somebody saying this is what's, what it's worth. It had um, a couple of pieces saying, oh, income, we don't know what that is. And then it had, my bio that I had posted, they copied and pasted it into this report and did the same thing with Josh's. And I thought, really, somebody pays for that? That's insane. And so literally, I can understand why people who use various, I'm sure there's, obviously, this is just one example of people doing stories on somebody, I'm sure some of it is good. But I've started now to ask in the last two weeks, I've asked friends, have you ever asked somebody to do prospect research on yourself, or even somebody who works for a nonprofit? Just look up your own and see what it says. And and I haven't, I've asked two or three people and, and every single one said they were way, way, way off. Now, the first person I asked, it was way off higher. It said they made way more money than they did and mine was way less. But in both cases, they were like 90%. Off. I mean, they were just crazy. It wasn't off a little bit. It was off dramatically. And 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 I, 
I got more upset because people are paying, look, people are paying money for this. Nonprofits are paying money and that money comes from donors like me. And I don't want my money to go to that. So it's, 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 I'm trying to help solve that. Yeah. This is a fireside chat at the Association of Prospect Research uh, Conference waiting to happen. I think so. Yeah. 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 Oh, excuse me. Okay. So as pleasant as this is, I have (laughs) crossed off almost all of my topics except for power. And we are going through a reckoning as a sector. We do, oh, we didn't talk about staff retention, but we're gonna have to maybe, that's another whole conversation. Um, But let's dig into power for a minute because in in the conversations that we are having around governance, um, we the weekly conversations we have about board governance on Clubhouse, which are actually pretty robust, every single time it comes up, the, the, the issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion on the board, in the boardroom, and the idea of power dynamics in the boardroom um, come up. And it is not unusual. I've worked with boards where the board will defer to the motivations and the decision of the person who makes the largest donation. Correct. Yep. And you have a story about your first discovery of the power that you had as a person um, when you became a multimillionaire. And, uh, and, and it's, and I'm just wondering if you, you know, no one's going to have to buy the book because we're talking about the entire thing right that's now. That's true. But- it's true. Just so let, let, let's suffice it to say it involves a lobster and a yacht. Maybe that's enough for somebody to <laughs> buy the book then. <laughs> do you want to hear the story? Yeah, I do. Well, oh, okay. if you, you want to share it, because you have a few. I mean, you have stories about staff who come in and ask which toilet they're allowed to use. And yes, like the, 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 the people who haven't worked with, individuals as Paul and I have just haven't been exposed to that kind of thing, but it's real. So, so yes, please share if you've got the time. Sure. So uh, after we uh, became wealthy, we bought a house that we wanted to buy specifically uh, that had, that could accommodate a lot of people for an event because I had always heard about nonprofits needing a place to have events. And I thought, okay, I'm going to find somewhere where we can actually do these and, and people don't have to go, you know, beg and borrow. But it, if it's a, if it's a nonprofit, we're interested in, we'll let them use our house. So, so we've done that for about 200 events and uh, over the period of many years and learned how to, to do events very efficiently. And, uh, but, but we, we, we were very clear that we wanted to do things right. And what we did is when we bought the house, we, they said they're going to need about uh, 12 weeks, I think, to get it done or eight weeks or something. And my kids were little. And I said, you know, my, my, my youngest ones. And I said, you know, let's just they suggested, I think, why don't you get out of town for a little bit? You can afford it now. Why don't you go somewhere you've always wanted to go? So we said, OK, fine. So we rented a yacht. Then we went around uh, Greece. I have an uncle who lives in Greece and we brought uh, uh, some dear friends of ours and we brought a, another family with kids around the same age and we brought uh, Josh's parents. And we went on this trip and we thought, this is amazing. This is a once in a lifetime thing. And it's, you know, I can't believe we're doing this. And the yacht is so exciting and there's a yeah, staff. And then, no, like, yeah. it, it was like, and I am pinching myself. He was like, and they're showing us where they desalinate the water and be, so that it's completely in case there's a problem, whatever they can do. It was just incredible. 
and uh, we meet the staff and it was it was it was all lovely and so we've just seen the boat and it's pulling out and as it pulls out this is very very beginning and it and we're just again pinching ourselves and it pulls out from the dock and all of a sudden there's this lurch and we have this glass vase beautiful glass vase with flowers fresh flowers of course in our bedroom, which I don't think they're called bedrooms. I forgot what they're called or quarters or whatever. And, uh, and it, it crashes to the floor. And we thought, oh my gosh, I've got to pick this up. And so we start to do that. And of course they run in and they say, oh no, 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 that's our job. That's our job. And they do it. And about, and they say, oh, okay, fine. This is strange, but I'm going to, like, whatever. They want me to get out of the room. So I will. And so we were out and we were sitting in the sun and it was, and, and, and I get this, I, I see a bunch of the, the, the staff kind of whispering to each other and they're around me. And one of them says, you'll go talk to her. I'm thinking, I'm really not scary. And I'm the same person I was three months ago, but okay. And they say that this person comes over and says, well, we need to talk to you about something that's very serious. And I thought, okay, like, I, I guess you ran out of gas. We have to go back. I, I don't know. And so they said, um, they said, well, actually the, the chef was preparing a lobster for you for dinner tonight. And when the boat lurched, uh, it, it, or there were several lobsters, I guess, in this big pot, the pot of hot water, boiling water fell on him and he had burned his foot and couldn't walk. And it was severe, severe burns. And he says, and I said, oh my God. So like, you're going to send a helicopter and take him to the hospital. What are you going to do? And he said, no, 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 no. We're going to the next uh, part of this island. It was another, another harbor. And we're going to have somebody pick him up and take him to the hospital because um, they're very severe burns. They need to be attended to. And I said, okay. I said, you know, is there anything we can do? And they said, oh no, no, no. We just didn't want to bother you. And I thought, what do you mean bother me? Of course you're going to tell me this. So, so I said, okay, we were all very, very worried and wanted to see the guy. They wouldn't let us see the guy. And so then they said, okay, we're going to get off the boat. And they said, but we're, the reason we're telling you is not to feel sorry for this guy, but because we won't be able to have lobster for you for dinner tonight. You're going to have to go to this harbor where we're stopping and have dinner at a restaurant. And we're really, really sorry. <laughs> so, what do you mean? Of course, I'd love to go to the restaurant. That sounds great. But is the guy going to be okay? So, uh, so it's about an hour later, we'll get ready for dinner. We're going to get off the boat. Everything's exciting. And we're still, you know, amazed at, at, at our good fortune. And uh, they said, do you mind if the, the man who, who has to go to the hospital gets off the boat first? And I said, well, uh, why would I mind? Of course, take him out, do whatever you need to do. And so he goes to get off, off the boat and he has a shoe on, he has shoes on. And I said, how does he have shoes on? And they said, well, it's excruciatingly painful for him, but he was embarrassed to be in front of you without shoes on. I was like, this is crazy. I felt like I was in a really crazy movie. And so he gets on the boat and he goes off and we go to, uh, go to our dinner. And, and I said, I, I, don't, I don't understand this because they really thought we'd be upset. And they kept apologizing. And so finally I said to them, uh, after he left, yeah, I hope he's okay. And I said, and they said, oh, we're really sorry. You won't have a chef. They're going to fly somebody in tonight. And, okay, fine, whatever. You know, we're fine to have like, you know, Jack in the box on the boat. We were so excited. So, um, and and I, I finally said to them, what kind of people are on these boats? Because the way you're talking to me makes it seem like they're not very nice people. And they said, well, no one's ever asked us that question before. And, and, and you know, we try and do the right thing for each group of people. But basically, they, they made it very clear that people were not very nice and people had various expectations and would have been angry if they didn't get their lobster dinner. And, and I just found that horrifying. So I still do. So not all fundraisers suck and not all wealthy people are assholes. I think that's the moral of the story, but it exists, right? It exists. Right. Um, and not all fundraisers are pushy and don't do their homework. 
How's that? Right. Some of them come in prepared just to, or just listen and learn. Um, Paul, before we wrap things up, do you have any final questions or thoughts? No, biggest thing was, uh, was just really, Elisa, thank you for the, for the voice you had for the advocacy on behalf of fundraisers and fundraising to help it improve. Because again, there's a, just like you said, a perfect example of this chef that didn't feel empowered or human. Sometimes we need people in those places of privilege at the time to fight for us. And, you know, again, through remind boards, leaders, donors don't think this way. There's so much assumption. Again, you said the most dangerous word in this whole deal is assumption. We got to talk to each other. I think that will be a key thing, but they need to hear that a lot of what they think is common, it's not common sense. So that's an important piece. And, and please keep advocate, advocating, adding that voice to the space. And uh, we'll see you out there in the Twitterverse. Yeah, there's, so much. there's lots more anecdotes. There's a lot of practical, well-researched uh, information. And I love that at the end of every section, you say, this is my experience. This is what you should do instead. So there's actual practical tips and tricks in there. So we're very grateful that you spent so much time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. And I hope to hear from your listeners on our Philanthropy 451 um, uh, blog. We I have entries about they're in between the snarky Twitter uh, tweets and the book. And, and so about things that happen to me on a daily basis and, uh, and happen to my friends and stories I hear and, uh, uh, and, and I, uh, all done in the spirit of being helpful to the sector. So we're going to put the link to that on our, in our show notes. And, uh, and your voice is important and your experiences are going to continue to accumulate. So um, we look forward to hearing more. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that being on the show. Lisa, thank you so much for making this conversation a priority. And thank you all for being here today. Folks, remember to check out the show notes for links to Lisa's website, lisagreer.com. And please remember to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. It would mean so much. Uh, thank you all for spending time here today. See you next time. Bye.